Amen. I wonder if you've struggled like me with this reality at some point. Uh, there's a slide here. Currently dark. Maybe I'll press that one. Do I need to press anything? Who's ever, who's ever struggled with 100 points of ID? You know you have to go to Centrelink and all these places and you, and you struggle with 100 points of ID. And you think, have I bought enough? You know, I've, sometimes you've got to bring a letter or a passport or a birth certificate or something like that. Uh, so the picture here has uh, a passport and a birth certificate. <laughs> and it's, it's about this idea that if you come up with 100 points of ID, you can prove who you are. Uh, so much so that that will actually then get you another piece of ID which will then prove who you are. So this whole question of who am I gets established by these documents. But I want to suggest that the actual question, who am I, is actually a deeper question. You can prove who you are, but what goes into the, that question in your own mind? Who am I deep down? Who am I as a person? So I want to, I want to talk about that question today. Talk about the question, who are we and how do we determine how do we determine how we feel about that? Uh, and I want to start with asking the question that any child will ask. If you imagine a child looking out at the world, every child is born and they start to take in information. They're listening, they're looking and they're asking questions. And they ask these sort of questions. They ask the question, who am I? They've got to find out the answer to that question. So they ask the question, am I okay? How do they know if they're okay? Generally, they see it in the eyes of the people who are looking at them. Are people telling me that I'm okay? Am I accepted in this world? Is this family taking me in? Children are asking these questions, and we're providing answers for them by how we treat them. Do people like me? That's part of our identity. What's my place in this world? Do people think I look okay? What is my personality going to be like? What do you think of me? All these questions go into forming our identity. That question, who am I? Right from young, children are looking for answers to those questions. And we're demonstrating to them who they are by how we treat them in this world. If you've come from a more traditional background, say, you know, a tribal society, uh, not sort of a Western context, Chances are your identity has been fairly given to you by your context. So most tribes and most traditional societies, they work on giving a very clear sense of who we are. What does it mean to be a person in this society? There's a clear set of rules, clear set of expectations. People get their identity. I fit in this society. This is how I'm meant to behave. This is how I'm meant to think. This is how I fit in relation to older people, younger people, men and women. The society gives us a very clear sense of who we are in traditional societies. And, and that, you know, that, you know, as a Westerner, we kind of think, well, that's very, that's very um, structured, isn't it? Because what do we value about our identity? We value choice. I should be able to choose my identity. I don't want anyone telling me who I am. I'm going to decide that for myself. And so we have this strong idea that we can choose for ourselves who we are. We don't have our society telling us we choose for ourselves. Does that make sense? 
But that's kind of where society sits in the West. Uh, those that, Here's the deal though, I don't think it's working. I think there are so many people uh, who are given the responsibility to choose who they are and they're actually struggling. Our society is struggling with the choice about who we are and who we're meant to be. People from traditional societies have far less scope about who they're meant to be, but they actually feel more secure. I think that's a phenomenon we see worldwide. You have a, a clearer sense of who you're meant to be and a clearer sense of identity if you come from a traditional society. If you come from a, West, a Western society, generally you have this free range of you could be anything, but you actually feel very insecure about who you are. I think that's true. People in traditional societies have fewer choices, but they have a greater sense of security about their identity, generally. So in the West, we don't like being told who we are. We like to choose. Choice is a good thing, but I think we're struggling with it. I think we're struggling with the idea that we have all these freedoms. We don't know what to do with them. Even in some areas of life where in the past they were very defined. Gender was a very defined area that your society told you where you fitted. Uh, ethnicity was a very defined area. You knew where you fitted. You were this or that race. Uh, morality was very clearly defined by these big rules in society. But those things now are, are coming down to choice. We're changing the way we look at them. Because we value choice, these securities and these definitions are all fading and we're building a world around what we would like to choose to be. Now, if you describe this te technically, uh, there's a philosophical word, it's, it's post-foundationalism. <laughs> Foundationalism means there are foundations and those foundations are given and can't be changed. And our world kind of operated with these foundations for centuries. And we've said nowadays, we're going to get rid of the foundations, we're going to create our own foundations and we're going to leave those things behind. And people embrace this and say, let's just get rid of the past, let's get rid of tradition. We'll construct it in our generation the way we want because we'll feel constrained by these foundations. That's the general trend of philosophy across the Western world. Now, I'm not saying that questioning things is always bad, uh, nor am I saying it's not good to have options. But I don't think we've appreciated what we've lost. I think we've entered this new world wanting to get rid of the old things without actually thinking the cost of what it means not to take tradition with us. We've entered a new world and people are at sea. They've lost the sense of foundations because, hey, we wanted to get rid of them and we're now living with the consequences of what it means to get rid of them in many areas of life. The questions that form our identity were established fairly well in the past and we felt secure. We might have been tightly boxed, but we were more secure. And now... The boundaries have gone back and uh, we're not as tightly boxed, but we're feeling very insecure. There's very little external support nowadays for people to discover and construct their identity. It's like building a wall, but you don't have a plumb line, you don't have any guides, you're just putting the bricks together and hoping they're going to stay. The mortar doesn't even work too well nowadays. We used to be able to build solid walls fairly boring walls but they'd stay up 
And now we try and build these walls without sticking it together. We're constructing our own identities without the wisdom of the generations because we've left that behind. We've got less certainty, less guidance, less help, but we do have freedom. And I think it's actually a crisis in our world. People don't feel grounded. They feel fragile. They feel they're at sea. Their identity is up for grabs. It changes all the time. Because it's, we've, la- we've landed identity in the area of choice and given away the idea of tradition. And people are confused about who they are. I wonder if there's a sense that, that you feel that or you know people who feel that or that's part of our society today. There are traditional voices This is how the world works. This is what's important. You belong to this tribe, this family, this clan. It's expected of you. And there are non-traditional voices. Don't be constrained by tradition. Work it out yourself. You've got the freedom. Don't conform. I think we've shifted to the non-traditional voices. We're hearing them loud and clear all over the internet and on all our devices. So I want to talk about that. (laughs) I want to talk about how do we form identity as people. And I want to talk about an incident from the start of the life of Jesus. Now, we know the stories of his birth. How did Jesus form his identity as a person? Well, he, was, he grew up as a Jew, very tightly defined. He grew up in Nazareth, a kind of despised place. Uh, there are all these things that define human identity that we see in the stories. Every other, and everyone else, we've all got that. And then he goes for baptism by John, right at the start of his ministry. And something happens at this baptism that didn't happen at the other baptisms that John did. It says that heaven was torn open and the Spirit of God comes down like a dove and and lights upon him. You know, that moment is the answer to a prayer that happened hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah the prophet prayed this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64, he prays, God, tear open the heavens and come down. He prayed that maybe 500 years earlier. And Jesus is baptized and the answer to that prayer, heaven is torn open and God the Holy Spirit comes down. An answer to an ancient prayer. And in that moment, God is about to say something. Uh, Not sometimes in the Old Testament, you know, God speaks in a vision or a dream or something. The voice of God is about to speak. Uh, God has kind of been silent for 400 years in the intertestamental period. There's been no prophets or none allowed. And now a voice is going to come. What is the voice going to say that's been silent for so long? I think what this voice says is probably the most significant identity-forming words that we can ever hear. This is what the voice says. Uh, Is the PowerPoint up? We're dead. Okay. Okay. I'll quote it. (laughs) It's from Mark chapter 1. It's not a voice of rebuke. It's it's, It's not a voice of command. It's not a voice calling to war. It's a voice of affirmation. And it's a voice that confirms and affirms identity. Very rare that the voice of God is heard three times in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels. 
Jesus has identity. Uh, he has a Jewish identity. He's in a covenant relationship with God. He knows all of that. And then these words come from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The voice of God, that's the words that are spoken. So up until this point in Jesus' life, let me ask you this. How many miracles has he done up until now? How many miracles? Anyone know? None. No miracles. How many sermons has he preached up until now? None. Uh, How many people has he healed up until this point? None. In religious terms, he's done none of these good works that he would later be known for. He's done nothing to earn this affirmation. He hasn't done any of his ministry yet. Right at the start, before any of these things begin, this voice speaks and says, You are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. The voice from heaven affirms him before he has done any good works. He's God's son, he is loved, God is pleased before his ministry begins. There's something about this reality, identity, acceptance and favour that you can't get by doing things. You can't earn it. You can't attain it. It has to come as a gift. As far as God is is concerned, our identity can't be proven or worked out. It has to be received as a gift. It's something we have to believe, we have to trust, and we have to rest upon. We can't claim it for ourselves. We have to receive it from God. Jesus hears this voice from heaven. He is affirmed by the Father before any work has been done. This affirmation, this conferral of identity is the gift of the Father to him. But it's interesting that this voice does not go unchallenged. The voice comes from heaven. Uh, so it's Mark chapter 1, verse 11, if you want to look it up. And it happens, you know, the Gospels all tell this story. Uh, but I want to go to Matthew's Gospel where it follows up with another story. So in Mark, they don't have this story. But in, in Matthew, the story's there. Uh, they all tell, all the Gospels tell the story in different ways. But in, in, Mark, it's, in Matthew, it's the end of chapter 3, verse 17. This is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. That's the affirmation. And it's interesting, in Matthew's Gospel, it goes straight on to another story. It says, after this affirmation comes, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted, and after fasting, he was hungry. I find that's kind of one of the most obvious statements in the Bible, isn't it? After fasting for 40 days, he's hungry. Uh, And it says, the tempter, the devil comes to him and says something. And it's very interesting what he says to Jesus after he's heard this affirmation. What was the affirmation? You are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. What does the devil say? He says this, if you are the son of God. 
What's the difference between God's affirmation and the devil's voice? Two letters. If. If you are the Son of God. Such a small word, but such a powerful word. See, God says, you are my Son, whom I love with you and well pleased. And the alternative voice comes to challenge that and says, if you are the Son of God. And there's a massive challenge there. From this point on, he has the challenge to live his life based upon the identity of the voice of the Father. You are my son whom I love with you and well pleased. Or he can spend his life struggling with the if. If you are the son of God, do something to prove it. Go and make it happen. Claim it for yourself. Don't rest on what God has said. Do something to gain it for yourself. And to prove to yourself and everyone that you're okay. And I think that reality creates two, two identities that we have to form. And it ends up in two different lives and two different lifestyles. We can't prove our identity to God. You can't prove that you're okay. You can't give God a resume and say, God, just look at my resume. You can't work really hard, do really good things and earn his favor. Even after, this stuff doesn't happen after the cross or the resurrection, it happens before it all. Jesus receives this at the beginning. It's not even the result of being affirmed for what he's done. It's a statement of affirmation from the Father before it happens. So how does that apply to us? This Because we're talking about Jesus. How does that now apply to us? I'm not suggesting that I or you or anyone in this room is the Son of God in the same way that Jesus is. Uh, see, you know, we believe that Jesus existed from the beginning. He was with the Father. He was sent into this world, became a human being, lived a life, died uh, uh, and rose and went back to be with the Father. That's what we believe about Jesus. That's not my history. It's my future by faith, but it's not my past or my history. He was the sinless Son of God, innately divine. He was the Son of God in a way that nobody else could be, unique. So there is a sense in which this is just for Jesus. But the good news is each one of us is invited to take on that reality for ourselves, to become part of God's family. Sons and daughters, not because we are innately sons and daughters, but because God has decided to rescue us and has made an offer and said, I want to adopt you into my family. I have an innate son who is Jesus and I want to invite others to be adopted into my family. And through what Jesus does on the cross, we are invited in. Forgiveness comes. When I place my trust in him, I am adopted into the family. And so the words that are spoken to Jesus, you are my son or my daughter, apply to me in that way. Not directly, but through what Jesus has done on the cross. I, who was formerly estranged and alien to God's promises and covenants, an outsider, am invited in. So when I hear the words, you are my son or my daughter, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased, they're not just applicable to Jesus, the Son of God. They are applicable to all those who receive him.
I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I want to say these words and ask you, how does it sit with you when I say these words? I'm going to repeat these words several times. Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 11. The voice came from heaven. You are my son or my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Let's hear it again. You are my son or my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do those words sit well with you? Can you receive them? Do you have confidence that that is true? Can you receive them from the Father? Just as for Jesus, I don't think those words go unchallenged for us. There is another voice, a different voice, a voice of doubt, of fear, of skepticism. If you are the son or daughter of God, you'd better do something to prove it. The if comes in for us as well. Takes us out of the realm of faith, accepting what God has said about us, and puts us back into that place where we're struggling to prove that we are okay. Puts us back into the place where we establish ourselves rather than receiving God's word about us. And so we have to push to make the cut, we strive, we jostle in life, because our identity is not secure in him, because the if has taken root in our heart. We put ourselves on a treadmill, striving. I've got to get rid of the if. I can't accept that I just am. And so we stumble over this stumbling stone and life can take two different directions if the if takes hold in our heart. Interesting. You know, the devil has a history of doing this, of actually asking a question to put doubt upon God's word. Uh, if you go back to Genesis, uh, for example, God makes this statement to the, the people in the garden. You can eat from any tree you like. You've got free, incredible freedom. You know God is a God of freedom. You have every freedom that you want, except one. This one tree I'm reserving, I, I don't want you to eat from that tree. I want you to be dependent on me for things but you have incredible freedom. Don't eat from that one tree. That's the freedom God gives. And if you do, there will be consequences. There will be death. Interesting, into that setting, the serpent comes again, the devil, and asks a question. You know, sometimes we think we've got to be worried about the devil because he's scary, he's got a gun, and he's really dangerous. The most dangerous thing he does is ask questions. He doesn't even make a statement. He doesn't even put a temptation, really, yet. The first thing is the question. Uh, God said, you must not eat. And what does the devil say? Did God really say? He turns God's statement into a question. Did God really say that? Same tactic, 
God says something and the enemy comes with an alternative voice and puts a question mark there. And that's two destinies right there. Trusting in what God said or letting the question mark determine your life. There's only one tree that's forbidden and we feel restricted. God, you're so restricting. I can't eat, you know, I have 999 million varieties of trees over here, but that's the one I want. God said, you are my son. The devil says, if you are the son. There's a pattern in the way the enemy works. The search for identity goes on among human beings. The same question, I think, is asked in every generation. Every child is looking, who am I? Uh, How do I form a sense of self? How we answer those questions makes a massive difference. God has made some statements in history. He's told a story. And that story can become the foundation of our identity. We can look to him for that. So all of the history of the Bible culminates in the story of one person, who is Jesus. Uh, So on this side, all the darkness, the history of struggle, culminates in a cross. He takes upon himself all of the dark part of humanity. Sin, rebellion, war, pain, violence, all of that stuff comes upon him on the cross. He takes it upon himself. He dies and is buried. And on the third day, he comes to life, contrary to all expectations. The story comes to a conclusion here and then starts again here in the resurrection. And the resurrection says that God has not accepted that that is the end of the story. The story goes on. New life is given to Jesus. And it's like he draws all of us who trust him into this new reality, if we will follow. Jesus, the unique son of God, The voice of heaven affirms him in that. And then the voice of doubt comes. This story of all of history is dealt with. All of the sin and struggle of humanity is dealt with in the cross and uh, buried and laid to rest and a new life begins. And the enemy says, if. You can't seriously believe that God has dealt with everything. That you actually have a clean slate. That's the if. You can't believe that your future is secure for eternity because of Jesus rising from the dead. That's the if. And we ha- we're again left with that choice of with the word of God or the question mark of the enemy. We can be sons and daughters of God by adoption into his family. By the reality of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, God has proclaimed a new reality, a new history. In light of that, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again. And again to hear the same words. In light of the fact that God has, in Jesus, taken upon the darkness, the struggle, the sin, the pain, the depravity of humanity has been taken upon him he has died and been buried and been raised on the other side in light of that in light of the words of god let's close our eyes and listen again you are my son 
you are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And one more time. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. There is no if in God's statement of the gospel. That is the question put by the enemy. Father, thank you that our lives are established by you. You are the creator. You are the saviour. You give us the free gift of life in your son through his death, his resurrection, and through the new life made possible for us. Thank you that we are adopted into your family. That we receive the position as sons and daughters of the king. Lord, help us not to bow to the if not to live in the question mark and try and prove ourselves, but instead to receive your affirmation. Help us to trust. Help us to rest. Help us to thrive in your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.